remain standing. We're going to read uh, uh, some verses of Scripture. This is Psalm 46, 1 through 7. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's uh, let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, we are grateful for your uh, word this morning. Uh, Lord, we realize that um, the word of God is our, um, our, our guidebook. It's the lamp that directs us. It's the light that guides us. It is the very word of God. And Lord, this morning as we uh, share together, Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit would use the word of God to speak to our hearts. Lord, we do pray for our uh, nation today. We pray for our leaders on a national level, on a state level, on a local level. Lord, we pray for our school district, our school administrators, and Lord, the, the challenging times that they're facing. Lord, for teachers and students, Lord, bless them and guide them and give them strength for um, the task that you've called them to. And Lord, we just pray now that um, you would help us to uh, keep our eyes fixed and focused on you. May you clear our minds so that we can hear and receive your word. May we be like Samuel that says, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening, and we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take a little break from our study of uh, King Solomon and uh, think about our world and what happened 20 years ago yesterday, and I hope you're not overloaded on uh, thinking about what happened 20 years ago, but I think it's important for us to uh, refocus on that and hopefully learn some lessons that uh, will carry us through in the weeks and months and years to come. When tragedy strikes, especially national tragedy, uh, I find it interesting that not only do we remember what happened, but we remember where we were when we heard the news. I reflect back on my years on the planet and uh, some incidences where I can clearly remember not only hearing some very distressing news on a, on, about our country, but I remember where I was. November 22nd, 1963. I was a third grader at a small Christian school in Cleveland, Ohio. I remember my dad picking me up after school and learning that uh, the President of the United States of America... John Fitzgerald Kennedy had been shot and had died. Uh, fast forward uh, quite a few years later, and, and uh, January 28, 1986, I was a church not too far from here in Chelsea. I remember being in my office, and I remember receiving a phone call from one of our members. Her name was Joyce Hall. And the phone call said, hey, are, are you watching the news? Are you know, are you, you, you have close access to a TV or a radio? And I said, no, and what's going on? And she said, well, the, the space shuttle Challenger with five astronauts and two payload specialists, including the first teacher in space, 
just exploded after takeoff. We discovered a little little O-ring that didn't do its job, and uh, those astronauts went out into eternity. Well, I would imagine that uh, as we think about 9-11, you remember exactly where you were when you began to hear the news that America was under attack. And so this morning, we're just going to um, look at a little video clip that will kind of remind us of, uh, of what happened, a little uh, three minutes, four seconds long, and then we're going to jump back into our, uh, our message here. So let's go with the clip. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult moment for America. tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed The victims were in airplanes were in their offices. Secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers. Moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings. But they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel. But they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. No one will keep that light from shining. Well, this morning we want to think about some uh, lasting lessons from 9-11 and the importance of never forgetting not only what happened, but those lessons that we learned uh, after 9-11 happened. Let's start by thinking about uh, a passage from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And uh, let me just read a couple of verses there from uh, Luke chapter 13. Uh, Dr. Luke writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I find it interesting in Luke chapter 13 that Jesus is talking to some of his disciples and he's using a current event to teach a spiritual truth. He's referring to a tragedy that happened in the Tower of Siloam, which was located in southeast Jerusalem, and apparently that tower fell and 18 people died. And Jesus takes the opportunity to talk about something that happened in recent history to drive home a spiritual truth, saying that, hey, unless you repent, you too will perish. And so this morning we want to think about Four truths or reminders from 9-11. And uh, you can follow along on the outline in your bulletin if you would care to. But here's the first one. First one is this. Never forget that we live in a fallen world in which evil exists. Never forget that we live in a fallen world in which evil exists. So we need to be reminded that the world that we live in is not the world that God originally created. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and God created a perfect world, a perfect environment and put Adam and Eve in the, the, the Garden of Eden to enjoy perfect communion with one another and perfect fellowship with God. He gave them free access to every tree in the garden with one restriction. Don't partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Genesis chapter 3 happened and our world changed and we now live in a fallen, sinful world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Paul summarized it. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. But we live in a world where evil exists. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, we're six chapters into the book of Genesis, and all of a sudden God sees that evil has permeated the whole world. And he judges the world with a flood, worldwide flood, and he saves eight people, Noah and his family. We live in a world where evil exists. Now, there are some that teach that man is basically good. Uh, some believe that there's a spark of divinity within every person that's born and that the spark of divinity is, is somehow a, a connection with God or a part of God and somehow if we just kind of fan that spark that man will, will, will flourish in, in goodness. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are all born sinners. David writes about it in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so we don't have to teach our grandchildren or our children um, how, to, how to lie, how to steal, how to cheat. It, it comes to us, them naturally because we are all born with this sin nature. Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. Jeremiah the prophet writes in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. 
that we need to recognize and realize that we live in a fallen world where evil exists. And the epitome of evil is, in our world today is people who will um, have a, a suicide bomb on themselves and go into a building or a, a group of people and, and explode that bomb and kill innocent men, women, and children. We live in a world that is filled with evil. It was Billy Graham three days after the attack on 9-11 that spoke at the National Cathedral on a national day of prayer and remembrance called by, by President Bush. And this is what he had to say about wrestling with this problem of evil and suffering in our world. Quote, I've been asked hundreds of times in my life why God allows tragedy and suffering I have to confess that I really do not know the answer totally. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign and he is a God of love and mercy and compassion, even in the midst of evil and suffering. The Bible says that God is not the author of evil. And so the first lesson that we need to remember is that we live in a fallen world and we live in a world where evil exists. And if you read the scriptures and you read the New Testament and passages like 2 Timothy 3, where Paul begins to talk about life in the last days, uh, the picture that it paints is that life in the last days is not going to get better, but it's going to continue to spiral downward. Never forget that we live in a fallen world in which evil exists. The second lesson we want to think about is the lesson of the uncertainty of life. Lasting lessons from 9-11 is a reminder that life is uncertain. Proverbs 27.1, we read, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. On that tragic fateful day 20 years ago, 2,977 people went about their daily routine with no thought, no inclination that that would be their last day on planet Earth. They kissed their spouse goodbye, they tell their children goodbye for a day of school or whatever and went off to work not thinking that that would be their last day. James picks up on uh, this truth from Proverbs 27.1. And uh, James writes the familiar words in James chapter 4. Let me share them with you. James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And so James picks up on this topic and this biblical principle that life is uncertain. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And James in this text is not forbidding planning. He's not saying it's wrong to plan. He's telling us you need to hold those plans loosely. Because we have no um, idea, we have no certainty about tomorrow. 
And so James says, hey, we ought to say if, if it's God's will, this and that will happen. The Latin phrase is Deo Valente, means God willing. And James reminds us of the uncertainty of life and that we need to hold our plans loosely. Lesson number two, never forget that life is uncertain. And for three, almost 3,000 people, September 11th was the last day on the planet. But the reality is that on average day in the United States of America, 8,159 people die every day. 5,000 other people died on 9-11. We need to be reminded of Hebrews 9.27 that it says that it is appointed unto man once to die. So the little poem that I quote at almost every funeral I do is from a, uh, a headstone in a cemetery in Indiana. It goes like this. Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Let me, let me just say, share that again. Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. The uncertainty of life. We're reminded of that from the tragic events of 9-11. So the application of the truth of the uncertainty of life is that we need to be prepared for the next life, don't we? Jesus told a story and Jesus told a a parable in, in Luke chapter 12. It's called the parable of the rich fool. And it came out of people who were arguing about dividing an inheritance. And they came to Jesus and they said, Hey, you need to, you need to be the arbiter in this because we're fighting over possessions. And Jesus first gives a warning. This is beyond guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Do not define your life by what you possess materially. And then he goes on to tell that familiar parable. There was a man that had his life all planned out. And and he had an abundant harvest. And he needed to tear down his barns and build bigger barns to to hold all of his goods and all of his riches. And and, uh, he was all set to uh, enjoy his uh, life of ease now after a life of hard work. And he said, take life easy now. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's time to finally enjoy life. And it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, but God said to him, you're a fool. Because this night you, your soul will be required of you. And who shall all these things be? And then he says, so is everybody that is rich in this world and not rich toward God. And so the application is, is that, boy, we need to be, we need to be certain about our future. We need to be certain about eternity because no one knows what tomorrow will bring. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, because to me it's one of the most simplest explanations of, of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God. God made him who had no sin, what? To be sin for us. He placed the sins of the world on Jesus. Why? So that 
in him, when we're in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's a great exchange that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. And God grants to us um, the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ. And in standing before God, he sees us as justified because we're in him, just as if we've never sinned. Well, the third lesson that we want to think about from uh, lasting lessons from 9-11 is this. Never forget where to turn in times of crisis. Never forget where to turn in times of crisis. We read Psalm 46 as um, part of our scripture reading this morning. And it's a great psalm that starts out and says, God's our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. But let me read the rest of the psalm. We read the first seven verses. The rest of the psalm, the psalmist writes, Come and see what the Lord has done. He makes wars to cease and to, to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Never forget where to turn in times of crisis. And when you read through the Psalms, what you see is the Psalms mostly are written out of, out of personal crises. And the crises that David's experiencing. And, and he, he cries out to God in his times of crisis. Psalm 4.1, Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Psalm 5, Listen to my words, O Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, Lord, my God, I take refuge in me. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. And so the Psalms are written out of, out of personal crisis. And David is, what, turning to God and pouring out his heart to God. Never forget where to turn in times of crisis. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And I'm so thankful that after 9-11 happened, President Bush declared a national day of what? Prayer and remembrance. And so three days later, we gathered together in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, President Bush spoke, and uh, Billy Graham spoke words of hope and healing to our nation. There was also a fascinating dynamic that happened in churches all across America after 9-11. And for four, five, maybe six weeks, maybe a couple of months, the churches across America were filled. Because people were feeling vulnerable and they were looking for hope and they were looking for encouragement. The sad part of what happened is that after that kind of went away, everybody went back to their normal life. And while God wants us to turn to him in times of crisis, he does not want us to treat him like a genie in the lamp or a, 
a, a lucky rabbit's foot, and when we need help, that's the only time we turn to him. God desires a, a personal daily relationship. Revelation 3.20, John writes, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and have what fellowship with him. That verse is written to Christians. It's written to believers, and it says God wants to have a, a daily fellowship with us. God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. Unfortunately, human nature only turns to God when we're in distress. Psalm 119.67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. So it was C.S. Lewis that quoted, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So just like we remember pictures of President Bush standing on the rubble of 911 and he has a megaphone and he says, soon the people that did this will will hear from us. C.S. Lewis says, God uses pain as a megaphone to speak to us, to rouse a deaf world and to get our attention. Well, there's a fourth and last lesson that we want to learn and remember from that fateful day 20 years ago. And it's this, never forget that our ultimate hope is in God. Never forget that our ultimate hope is in God. And that biblical word hope is not uh, maybe wishful thinking, but biblical hope is the absolute assurance of something based on the promises of God. The three great virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. And so never forget that our ultimate hope is in God and God alone. And so again, let me quote Billy Graham from his message on that uh, national day of prayer and remembrance some 20 years ago. Here's what he told those present in, in our nation. There is hope because of God's promises. As a Christian, I have hope, not just for this life, but for heaven and the life to come. And many of those people who died on Tuesday are in heaven right now, and they wouldn't want to come back. And that's the hope for all of us who have put our faith in Christ. He goes on to say, I've become an old man now, and I've preached all over the world. And the older I get, the more I cling to my hope in Christ that I started with so many years ago. And so Billy Graham reminded us and reminded our nation of where our hope exists. And tragedy reminds us that our hope is not in this world, that our citizenship is in heaven, that that's our ultimate destination that we're not in the land of the living, headed to the land of the dying, but for those that are in Christ, we're in the land of the dying, headed to the land of the living, a place called heaven, if we've put our trust in Jesus. The Bible also reminds us of where not to put our hope, where misplaced hope happens in our world. And so let's just think about a couple of uh, 
principles and truths that the Bible speaks about, about where not to put your hope. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. That's trust in military strength. Those were the military tools back then. Uh, Some trust in the, the greatness and the might of our nation. And while the United States has the the greatest military in the world, that's not where our hope lies in the strength of America's military power. Some people put their misplaced hope in money. That was the story of the, 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 the rich fool that we talked about in Luke chapter 12. And he thought his life was all set. And he had his 401k and he had his retirement all planned out. And his hope was in his possessions and in his money. And the scriptures tell us, don't put your hope in money. Command those who are rich, 1 Timothy 6.17, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Wealth can come and wealth can go. In fact, the psalmist writes about it in Psalm 49. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is never enough. The psalmist is saying, there's no amount of money that you can give to God to redeem your soul. And the scriptures say, um, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And so misplaced hope, uh, it's not in in our military strength. It's not in money, nor is it in man's goodness. Luke chapter 18, verse verse 9, Jesus talks about um, this story of two people that were, were praying in the temple, and he addresses it to those who were confident of their own righteousness. And look down on everyone else. So our hope's not in our, our own goodness. In fact, Paul, when he writes about his, his life in that autobiographical section there in, in the book of Philippians, and uh, he says, I used to put my trust in, in my heritage and, and uh, the fact that I was a Pharisee and that I was religious and in my good deeds. And all those things I found were worth nothing except to know Jesus as my Savior. And so the Bible tells us, don't put your hope in the military. In fact, the last part of verse 7 in Psalm 20, but we hope in the name of the Lord our God. First Timothy six seventeen. the second part of the verse says, but put your hope in God. Never forget that our ultimate hope is in God. And God alone. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul encourages us to live our life with a different perspective. And that perspective is realizing that the things that are material are temporary and the things that are eternal last forever. And so in verse 18, he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. He says, Never forget 
that our ultimate hope is in God and God alone. Dr. Joe Stoll just retired from being the president of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. Years ago, wrote a book entitled Eternity, A Passion for What Endures. And he's writing in this book not only about the fact that our home is heaven, but how it should impact our our day-to-day and our everyday life. Let me just share a couple paragraphs. Dr. Stoll writes, Eternity is primary. Heaven must become our first and ultimate point of reference. We are often pressed with the reality of eternity only when a loved one dies. Or when we grow old and begin to realize that most of our lives have passed and we note with regret the little we have done for eternity. The little we take will take with us there and the short time left to do anything of significance for heaven's sake. Most of us live as though this world is where we are rewarded with happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, and prosperity. The understanding that we've been delivered from the domain of Satan and transplanted into the kingdom of his dear son escapes us. We seem unaware or worse yet uninterested in the unique values of the kingdom of Christ. We remain unaware until we are confronted by a stirring sermon or perhaps a failure in life that graphically brings us to light the fact that we have not responded to him as king but have sought to manage and maneuver our own way through life for our own benefit and gain. When the sermon has faded and the failure has been reconciled, we quickly slip back into building our own kingdom here and now. He concludes, if heaven is our consistent hope and King Jesus is our guide, the expression of his kingdom is our calling, then life in this world comes more clearly into view. Its disappointments don't damage or surprise us. We expect little of it. For our reward is yet to come. Dr. Stoll reminds us that our ultimate hope is not in this world, but it's in the world to come. Lasting lessons from 911. Never forget that we live in a fallen world in which evil exists. Never forget that life is uncertain. That none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Never forget where to turn in times of crisis. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And James says, is anybody in trouble? James 5, let him pray. And so we have the wonderful resource of turning to God. And then never forget that our ultimate hope is in God in God alone. And I trust that as we think about these truths that uh, we'll be stirred and uh, to remember uh, where to turn, who God is, and what His promises are, and that our ultimate hope is not in this world, but it's in the world to come. I trust that you know Him. Trust that everybody here has their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to pay their sin debt, to be their Lord and Savior, and that we can leave here with confident assurance that our home is in heaven. And I love how the book of John closes in John chapter 20. 
after John records the seven miracles of Jesus and the seven I am statements to demonstrate who Jesus Christ is, he closes the book of uh, the Gospel of, of John with these words, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. That's our hope. That's the hope for America. And that's the hope that we need to cling to, even in dark and difficult days. Let's pray together this morning, shall we? Lord, we recognize that we live in a fallen world where evil exists. And Lord, it's not the world that you originally created, but it's the world in which we live in. Lord, help us to be reminded this morning that our, our only hope is found in you and you alone. Lord, thank you that we have a, a refuge to turn to in times of difficulty, in times of crisis. That we can call out to you 24-7 and that you're a God who never sleeps, never slumbers, and will hear and answer our prayer. Thank you for a president 20 years ago that declared a national day of prayer. And Lord, I pray that we would be moved not just to uh, to call out to you in times of trouble, but help us to realize that you desire a, a daily intimate relationship with us. Lord, may we may we spend time on a daily basis in your word and in prayer. Lord, help us to realize that... Um, we need to be prepared for eternity. And none of us know what tomorrow may bring. And while we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future if we know you as our Savior. And so we reaffirm this morning that our hope has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed, but we trust the ever-living one whose wounds for us, he pleads, it's Jesus. And Lord, we acknowledge that hope today. May that encourage our hearts. May we share that hope with others. And Lord, we look forward to what's called the blessed hope, when someday you will return and take us home to be with yourself. May that encourage our hearts today, we pray. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.